Welcome to Human Circus. Hello and welcome. I'm Devin, and this is Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast where I follow travelers throughout that medieval world, whether they be warriors, wool traders, or wandering friars. And at this time, I would like to thank the newest addition to the Human Circus Patreon family. Thank you, Nicholas. I would also like to point out that for some nominal monthly amount, the price of a side of bacon at breakfast, say, you could also be part of that Patreon and keeping this podcast up on its feet. And by this podcast, I do mean me, its creator. And you could be doing so at patreon.com forward slash human circus or by way of my website at humancircuspodcast.com. That aside, let's get back to the story. The story of a journey from Constantinople to England. It's a story with smaller stakes than those battled over on the Syrian coast in the Salah Adin series, and it also means that I'm going back a bit to events that I covered in the past, in 2017 apparently. You see, a while ago, and I'm recording this in late August 2019, I had someone ask me why I hadn't told the story of Thomas Dallum's return from his time in Constantinople, a return I referenced in the last episode but didn't cover in any detail, having felt, back in 2017 at least, that I was very ready to move on to other stories and other characters. So, in a kind of Thomas Dallum postscript, I'm doing that now. What I'm going to do is leave this here as a new release with the current episodes for a few weeks, and then I'll bump it back next to the Dallum episodes so that people listening through to those can hear this as a conclusion. For those hearing this after a run of Salah Adin episodes, you, like me, could probably use a bit of a recap. After all, it's been a couple of years, so let's start with that. And for those of you hearing this episode right after the last Thomas Dallum one, bear with us a moment while we catch up. Let's start with the basics. Thomas Dallum was an Elizabethan organ maker, and one who had been responsible for a very special organ. A wonder of flair and automation, featuring figures that rose to sound their silver trumpets, birds that leapt into flight from bushes, and planets that made their movements across the sky. And all of this could be set in motion to music that could be played with or without a performer at its keys. Such an oh-so-wonderful instrument was no fleeting bit of fancy to brighten up the afternoons of English nobility. It was a diplomatic weapon and an impressive gift, one to be transported from Elizabeth's England to Constantinople by boat in 1599, and Dallum, our Dallum, was to go with it. On his journey, he encountered pirates, stumbled over local customs and modes of communication while ashore, and generally saw something of the world that a craftsman from Lancashire could hardly have expected to have seen. He landed in Constantinople, repaired the organ, which had suffered somewhat while at sea, and then presented it to the Ottoman Sultan Mehmed III. And he didn't only present it, he actually performed on it before Mehmed, 
and despite his fears that any moment might be his last if the sultan did not like what he heard, it was a tremendous success. Thomas Dallum came to Constantinople. He did very well for himself there in the city, where there was an ample appetite for him to stay. And it was not only people seeming to conspire to keep him there. One November day, Thomas walked out of the gates of the city that led out towards Adrianople. In other words, those pointing towards the northwest. Pointing, eventually, if you sprang from those gates in flight and kept on going, to Lancashire. There at the gates, he saw a caravan of camels, so tall that he had never seen such a thing, though I'm not sure what kind of an expert on camel height he could possibly have been. Then he turned back and saw the city of Constantinople as a tourist, taking in the many monuments it contained, its effigies of past and present greatness. So much of the city did he see that day, that though he had put on new shoes that morning, by night they were worn quite out. And maybe he overdid it. Maybe he wore himself quite out, as well as those shoes. For he fell ill with a fever and feared for his life. When the opportunity came to leave Constantinople, Thomas was not at all recovered, drained enough from his sickness that he was still too weak, really, to travel, not able to go on foot one mile in a day, and he was told so, too. But he would not stay. There was a promising company readying to depart, and if he did not go then, then when would he have another chance? Against the wishes and advice of those around him, not the least his physician, he left that November of 1599, on the day of the 28th, at four o'clock in the afternoon. He went aboard a Turkish ship whose crew and master were, he grumbled, most barbarous, its voyage discontented. December did not begin well for the ship and its passengers. After passing the ruins of Troy, which Thomas had pawed over on his way to the city, strong winds forced them in at the island of Lemnos, almost shipwrecking them. Then, when the weather settled enough to allow them to leave, it settled too much and they were soon becalmed. By the 8th of that month, however, the wind had turned fair, and by the 9th, they'd reached the Greek mainland. The next day, they took to horses. The company Thomas kept now was one of eight mounted men, with four extra mounts along for bedding, wine, and food for three days. The way was not restful. Indeed, rest was hardly possible for the fear of having their throats cut in the night. But then, there was at least good wine and good sheep. As the way turned mountainous, Thomas identifies this as the hills of the Parnassus, the weather worsened. Thunder, lightning, rain, and snow. And bad enough all for the organ maker, surely only slightly exaggerating, to say it was, quote, so bad as I think never did Christians travel the like. It was steep and stony, and the margin for error was narrow enough that only a small misstep by one of their steeds would send both horse and rider to their death down below. Not the only source of nearby danger as it would turn out. There was also the unpleasant business of the four stout villains that dogged their tracks, but they wouldn't find out about them just yet. Not until they had spent four more days in crossing the mountainous region. Not until they had rested in a little village where, though the country was cold, the women went about barefoot. 
Not until the 17th, when they had reached Lepanto. That was where their guide and interpreter told them what had been happening. This guide, who went by the name Finch, was an interesting fellow himself. He was in the service of the Ottomans, and in religion, Thomas said, a, quote, perfect Turk. But like many who made their lives at the center of Ottoman imperial power, he was not born to that part of the world. By quite a coincidence, an almost unbelievable one, really, he was, like Thomas, originally from Lancashire, the town of Chorley, more specifically. Finch, whose Lancashire origins Thomas seems to find perfectly natural, now informed his charges of the danger they had been in. Those four stout villains had not only followed them, they had spoken with Finch, and now that this was all coming out in the open, Thomas and the others realized they had seen the four doing so, but only ever one at a time. The four had planned to sneak into their camp at night, to cut their throats and rob them, and they'd attempted to gain Finch's assistance, but he had put them off. Tomorrow, the next day, the one after that. On that fourth night, the would-be assassins would not be put off. They did not intend to spend day after day on the venture, to watch the sun rise and set over the same ignorant prey. They made it clear that it had to be then, for they would go no further. So Finch communicated to them that the fourth night would do just fine. They could come in and finish the job. But after tucking Thomas and the others in for the night, cautioning them, as he had the previous three, to keep a close watch, he went over to the villain's camp and gave them enough wine to bring first intoxication and then paralyzing violent sickness. Thomas, when he learned of it all, thanked God in his writings, which was, I think, a little unfair, as it was pretty clearly Finch who he owed most immediate thanks to. Though for what it's worth, he does acknowledge Finch as the party's trusted friend. So as I said, this story was being related to Thomas and his friends in the town of Lepanto, a good haven town lying close to the sea, in the rising of a hill, where he reported a population that was the greatest part Jews, with some Turks and some Greeks. He noted its abundant springs, some of which drove mill wheels, the very pleasant wines, some white, some red, and the production of currants, oranges, lemons, pomegranates, dates, and almonds. The town was situated on the mainland Greek coast on the Gulf of Corinth. It had been the site, some thirty years earlier, of the naval Battle of Lepanto between the Ottoman Empire and the Holy League a coalition of forces from present-day Spain and Italy. That battle had been just a tremendous success for the coalition, but it had not in any way led to a rolling back of the Ottoman borders, which had stretched north into Central Europe. The Greece that Thomas traveled through was still an Ottoman imperial possession. From Lepanto, the travelers crossed the water to what he called the Morea, the Peloponnese Peninsula, and there we get a taste of the violence Jews were vulnerable to. The party stayed three nights in the house of one Jewish man, an honest man, Thomas said. But then they couldn't see the English consul, for he was forty miles away, seeing to the hanging of another. And there's no mention of what crime this person may or may not have committed. But a note on the same page that a member of the company needed to be held back from cutting off the head of a Jew for speaking against Jesus in some fashion leaves me thinking that it might not have been much, 
might not have been anything at all. The party dined on Christmas Eve beside a river, shaded by the trees and watching the swallows flip past above them. Though it was winter, Thomas felt it hotter than an English summer day. That night, the four men who kept watch reported a ball of fire, a great football of fire, apparently, rising in the sky to the east, flaring bright, and then falling and fading to the west. There was some regret from those who had slept through it. On Christmas morning, they all rose at four o'clock and traveled through largely uninhabited country, just the occasional shepherd's hut or cluster of poor cottages. Then, as they continued, the herds of swine, sheep, and goat became countless, the shepherd's dogs increasingly threatening to pull them from their horses. Then, out on the plain, the skies opened. The rain was sudden, torrential, but unstirred by wind. It lasted less than fifteen minutes, but for that time their horses would not move. They stood like statues. Enough water fell that no ground was to be seen all around them. And then, just as suddenly, it ceased and all but disappeared into the earth. They passed on, the sea and an infinite number of what Thomas called wild swans on their right, and he seems to have been easily overwhelmed by quantities of animals, often enough, judging them numberless or infinite. They passed on, with mountains and the occasional castle to the left, moving west until they reached the coast. They said goodbye to Finch, that capable guide and interpreter from Lancashire, he returned to Constantinople, and they bartered their way aboard a swine boat bound for the island of Zante. Now you might remember Zante from Thomas's outbound journey, from his adventurous hilltop climb, the confusing transactions that took place there, his bungled attempt at sexual tourism. And he might well have remembered that too, and perhaps planned a return visit to the house on the hill. But just for now, he'd be doing no such thing. They were freshly come from Constantinople, without a letter of health from a Venetian or other Italian, and as such were to be quarantined on arrival. It was to be ten days of imprisonment, and then, if any showed signs of sickness, another ten days. They were given an unusually pleasant place to spend that time, an empty house by the sea. But on the other hand, the people of the swine boat that had brought them were housed with them and they were obliged to provide food for these people, a burden they seemed to have really grumbled under, reasonable though it may have been. A man named Paul among the party petitioned the local health officials to do something about it, which they did. It was agreed that the boatmen needed only to leap from the window into the seawater with their clothes on, and they could go free. But this they quite reasonably did not want to do. So a Mr. Connesby drew a scimitar and quite a bit less reasonably swore that if they did not do so, he would cut off their legs and then make them jump. As they did not want to wait around and see if he really would, the issue was resolved. Many other things apparently happened during their imprisonment, but for want of time, Thomas was not going to share them with us. They would spend 46 days on the island, waiting for a ship bound for Venice or England, and after those 46 days, such a ship finally arrived. By quite a coincidence, it was the Hector, the very ship that had brought Thomas and his organ out to Constantinople in the first place. He expressed a touch of sadness, for he would have liked to have seen Venice, 
but he was grateful all the same, for a safe passage among men he was familiar with. And on the 26th of February, he sailed from Zante. The voyage he now embarked on was to have a halting beginning, one that saw them forced to harbor by foul weather. But once they had sheltered in Kefalonia, which should be very familiar to any Assassin's Creed Odyssey players among you, and partaken of its excellent sweet wines, they were on their way again, and in the company of seven other ships. By the sixth day, they were passing by the Gulf of Venice, and with it, Thomas's last chance to see that city. They were thrown off course by gale winds, but not particularly troubled. Soon, they sighted the burning mountain of Sicily, Mount Etna, and also that island's watchtowers lighting up at their presence, each one signaling to the others the number of unfriendly sails they'd spotted. At times, their ships were close enough to the coast to see bodies of armed men gathered there, though whether or not these were in response to any threat they posed, it's hard to say. Life at sea was not always gale-force winds and volcano spotting. Days would pass with nothing to remark upon, or only that the wind had been fair. But then on others, a dash of casual piracy really spiced things up. Near Sicily, some thrills at least were provided by a Spanish ship bound for Malta. And the Hector was the one to take the prize, a little ten-man vessel loaded with the wheat of which Sicily produced so much. The wheat and the boat itself were given away, but Thomas, who had in the past been deeply aggrieved by how these things were handled, didn't grumble much over it. He was simply pleased with the very fine white bread and good cheese that they had taken. Late March was about passing encounters with other ships, the sea not such a big empty place as you might think, and about good weather days of progress, followed immediately by ones when they were hurled back or becalmed, punishment some used for that prize they had taken. And that sort of superstition was not in isolation. On the evening of the 1st of April, when Thomas dined with some merchants in their great cabin, the cry of a mermaid was heard as if it hailed the ship. And no, I've no idea what exactly that sounded like. He doesn't tell us. And there was going to be no attempt to investigate the source of the sound. No attempt to see if it was an animal or a shipwrecked sailor in need of aid, for the boatswain wouldn't allow it, so hopefully it was not a shipwrecked sailor in need of aid. Reaching the Balearic Islands, they put in at Formentera for fresh water, and found also a headless body near one of the island's watchtowers. They otherwise found it inhabited only by exiles, Thomas says, a haven for Barbary pirates, other sources say. Abitha brought better things, though, a kindly merchant with a boat full of gifts to supplement their unappealing stores. Lemons, oranges, herbs, and little onions, green beans, lettuce leeks, and two goats. A full feast, really, and very much appreciated. There was a shark that followed the ship along the Spanish coast, somewhere near the Cabo de Gata, a creature sufficiently fearsome-looking that Thomas was sure that if a man had come within his length of the water, he would hardly have escaped. Sufficiently fearsome that when the master gunner made an attempt with a harpoon, the weapon was only blunted against the skin behind its head and left scarcely a mark for it to carry off. As they traveled, the little fleet was growing in size, picking up ships they met along the way. There was one from Yarmouth on April 13th, 
and three more English vessels, along with a Flemish one, on the 15th near Gibraltar. They were gathering strength, but there was concern when the weather scattered them for a time, leaving them spread league by league. What if the Spanish were to come upon them then, in their weakness? It was no idle worry. They were near Gibraltar, but they were struggling to enter the strait, the winds being against them the one day, and then on the 16th, leaving them totally still. But on the 17th at 10 o'clock, the wind was with them, and by the next morning they were through, passing Cape Spartel on the Moroccan side. One of their company, the fastest one, had gone on ahead of the rest. The Rebecca was going to carry the news of their coming on ahead. But then early in the morning of the 20th, a Sunday, a sail appeared on the horizon, and as it grew closer, it became clear that the approaching ship was the Rebecca. Why was it back? What they didn't yet know, what they'd soon learn, was that the men of the Rebecca had themselves seen two sails. They thought them at first to be ships come fresh from the Indies, loaded with wealth. But it had soon become clear that they were men of war, one twelve hundred tons, one eight hundred. The Rebecca had fled before them, coming into view of the Hector that Sunday morning. Now the Hector's master wanted no part of this particular battle. Picking off Maltese grain shipments was more his style, maybe, and this certainly promised to be a stiffer test than that ten-man crew had been able to offer. Only one other ship, the Great Susan, was near at hand to help. But his sailors saw the matter differently. They were absolutely spoiling for the fight. And for whatever reason, the master acquiesced. In the scenes that follow, Thomas describes the men of the Hector readying themselves for the struggle. They go first to prayer, for who could know what was to happen? Then the gunners make ready their ordnance. The fights were hung, the sheets to conceal the men aboard from their enemies. And the crews of the Hector and the Great Susan generally prepared themselves for the clash to come. Everything, every little thing, was in place for one last dramatic peak. One final adventure in the long adventure of Thomas's trip to Constantinople and back. But then, he lets us down. Or someone, at some time, does. As you read along, you get to the build-up towards the naval battle, and then you read these words, just the cruelest to come across there between the brackets, quote, here, some pages are missing. And then there below them, the footnote, quote, These pages doubtless relate the battle, which, as the sequel shows, was a victory for the English. So that's disappointing. And though I honestly don't remember, I suspect it had something to do with my not covering the section in the first place. But these are the accidents. Sometimes happy, sometimes not so happy, on which our understanding of the past is based. Things are found, and things are lost. Some reach us, seemingly against all odds, resurfacing unlooked for. Others are cut out from our knowledge, including, unfortunately, these pages, this battle. Thomas survived it, of course, and as that footnote helpfully informs us, his side was victorious. The Hector and the Great Susan evidently coming out on top. And they took a Spanish captain for a prisoner, too. This at least we know, for in the last surviving page, we read that Thomas and three others put ashore at Dover, taking the captive with them, taking him unto the merchants. We read that they blew trumpets all the way into town, that they took post horses to Canterbury, 
and from there to Rochester, and then on to London. They were as merry as could be, Thomas said, being very glad that they were once again upon English ground. And Thomas, Thomas would not be leaving the home island again. His great adventure was over. He would not have another opportunity to see Venice, and we will not be seeing him again on this podcast. As this is, and I really mean it this time, the end of the road for Thomas Dallum. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again soon. Human Circus will return.